This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Shavua Tov and hello to everybody. This is Riverton Adel Kazilski sitting in the seat. Very excited to share with you the next hour. Learning Torah, my passion, hopefully yours. And, um, yeah, we're coming to a bit of a milestone. We are going to be completing the Parsha of Noah. We will have completed the entire story. At the end, there isn't a story about Noah, but about Noah's sons. And then, please, God, um, next week I am going to be going to find some warmer pastures just for a little while. Just want to get off this coat and the boots and just, uh, Bask in the sun a little bit more, as I'm sure many of you out there are doing. Um, and uh, when I get back the week after, please God, we'll be starting a brand new parsha, the f- um, famous parsha of Lech Lecha, where um, we start learning about our forefather Abraham. But first things first, we are going to complete the parsha of Noah and learn a very, very fascinating story. Um, it seemingly seems that it's a story of yesteryear, of long, long time ago. I shouldn't even say yesteryear from, from many, many, many um, years ago. Um, but once we will go through it, you will go, you're going to hopefully come to the realization that we kind of like do the same thing today, metaphorically. And this has always been something where man tends to, to, to resonate. A space that man tends to resonate is not a very good space. Um, but it's, 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 it's an old habit that mankind has. We're going to be looking into chapter 11, um, of Genesis. So if anybody is following in, we're in chapter 11 of Genesis. There's 32 verses and we are going to be going through them. So, where we left off the last time was the lineage of um, Noah. We spoke about his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet, and their various descendants. And we spoke a lot last week about um, th- where they went and who they are. And in fact, that today they are still they still make up what we consider the seventy nations of the world, and that they're really going to come to the fore again now as we are coming very very close to the Geula, to the redemption. And the war of Gog and Magog, et cetera, et cetera. If you did miss out, know always that things are podcasted on High FM and you just need to go back onto the website, check out the name of the presenter, and then you would be able to go and find what was said in previous uh, lessons. So no need to have FOMO. No need to have fear of missing out For those who don't know what FOMO is I think most people do um, You can go back and look at it that way Chapter 11 verse 1 reads the following The entire earth at that point in time That was by Shem, Chaim and Yafet They were of one language with uniform words now, we are looking, just to give you some historical perspective, we are looking at the year 1996. So if you want to work that out, um, just in terms of our um, Gregorian calendar, it's 1,764 years before the Common Era, 1,996 years after creation. Um, we <clears throat> are going to start learning about a story that gets known as the Dorha Haflaga the uh, generation of disperse, disper, uh, dispersion, and we are going to be hearing about the Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel. Now, this story 
when it initiated and it started was 340 years after the Great Flood, year 19. 96. Um, remember that the flood finished in 1656, so this is 340 years later. Um, we have Noch and his sons having many, many children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc., etc., etc. There actually is 10 generations um, that are found in that space because we are also told that at the time of this story of the Tower of Babel, Abraham already was 48 years old. Abraham was a 10th descendant from Noah. So um, there's a lot of people, a lot of generations involved in, in that. Now, what happened was is that Abraham's uh, one son, Shame, was um, was alive. He was protecting them in terms of his righteousness. Um, in fact, the gematria, the numerical value of shame, shin and mem, shin is 300, mem is 40, 340 years. And that's why for the first 340 years after the story of the flood, things seemed pretty good. Everybody was speaking one language with um with the same words, with, 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 with words that were common. And, uh, we were told that what eventually happened is that the people started speaking disrespectfully again, meaning that they started taking the unity of God and started questioning it and started again getting involved in things like idol worship. Um, the, the philosophers that lived amongst them started arguing that God had no interest in the world, that, um, the direction of the world was really left to planets, to stars, that God didn't really care about mere flesh and blood, and um, no one should really bother answering him, because, uh, trying to pray to him because God would not answer him. In fact, if you go further down and look into Greek um, Greek philosophy, you'll see Aristotle had a similar uh, opinion, and he said God was only concerned with the astronomical. Having said that, this, this build-up, this type of discussion went and took this Safa Echat, which our rabbis go and read that it was a Safa, it was a language that was fighting against the Echad, the unity of God, and they were started speaking different words. Um, so if you look at the thing, Udvarim Achadim means singular words, meaning everybody had a different opinion about what was going on, and... Um, they started saying, no, we need idols, but maybe we should be praying to this, to that. But the long and the short is that after many years, they came to the conclusion that um, God did not play an active role in this world. Now, this is an interesting discussion in and of itself, and maybe we could take a little bit of a, a poll if you guys are brave enough. Don't have to be known. I certainly will not mention your name um, on air. Um, do you believe that God takes an active role in our lives or is he really only involved in the big things, the astronomical things, or maybe, you know, he doesn't exist at all for you or he's just, you know, some entity that's a nicety to, to believe in? Or on the other hand, do you believe that um, God is intimately involved in your life and is worrying if the next blade of grass will bend completely when the wind blows or not. How intimate is God in our lives? A very, very fundamental question because this is what bothered the the people in the time of uh, Bavel. 
and uh, it caused them to 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 get quite confused to say the least about what that answer would be so you can sms on 34519 can whatsapp on 0618951019 again the burning question today is is god intimately involved in our lives to the very last detail or does he take a more withdraw type of uh, attitude and only worry maybe about the big things or maybe about nothing at all what's your take on this this is mystical text with adel kazilski the Jewish Community Survey of South Africa is live. Go to www.jcssa2019.co.za to sign up. This is a once in a life, in, in a decade opportunity to participate in the Kaplan Center's national online survey. The survey is open to Jewish adults 18 years and older living in South Africa. Your views are important and your participation is essential for planning for the long-term needs of our community. Make time, participate, have your say, jjssa2019.co.za. That's Jewish Community Survey, SA, South Africa, 2019.co.za. Okay, we're back, and uh, I'm asking the question, how intimate is God in our lives? How much do you believe that God takes a um, part in your life? Is he there with you every minute of the day? Is absolutely everything that happens coming your way because God is orchestrating it? Or is God a little bit more withdrawn from that aspect of life? And um, he's look, he's overseeing the major things. He's the CEO. Would love to hear your opinions on three four five one nine or our WhatsApp on zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. Well, let's see what they have to say in uh, the Bible. Um, they were speaking one language. They were talking the same words. They then migrated from the east. They found a valley in the land of Shinar and they settled there. So what basically happened is that there was a lot of talk about God and God's influence on this world. And they decided to make a capital city, a place where they would be able to have a place large enough for lots of them to plot together. And this they did find, in fact, in the fertile land, fertile area in the land of Shinar, in the vicinity of what we know as biblical Babylon, Iraq today. Um, then what happened, they said the following to each other, Vayoimru ish et each man said, they said to one another, Hava nil bena levenim venis rafa. They said to each other, come, let us mold bricks, let's fire them up, meaning let's, let's produce bricks. And then they made the bricks to use a stone and they use asphalt as mortar. And they said, Hava nivne lanu ir, let come now, let us build a city. Umigdal verosho bashamayim, venase shame, pen nafutz alpene kola aret. Let us build a city, then let's build a tower 
whose top will reach the sky and let us make ourselves a name that we should not be scattered all over the face of the earth. So what was the entire idea behind um, this endeavor was that they were looking at creating a tower which we are told was so huge and so big that they had intention to reach the heavens. First and foremost, we need to understand that the leaders of this were in fact the grandsons um, and sons of Ham. Ham was the son who in the ark already broke protocol and was intimate with his wife. You remember he was cursed then. He had a son called Canaan. Um, he had other sons, Cush, Mitzrayim, and Put. And all these four sons now were the perpetrators or were the leaders that fueled this building of this enormous tower. Um, and it said it became such an obsession um, about how big, how wide, how huge, how tall that this tower should be, that they actually lost sensitivity to the people involved. So uh, the Midrash tells us that uh, if a brick fell, they would get really upset that this was a waste of a brick, you know, that um, they, should, they should be very careful on maintaining um, the stock that they had of the bricks. But if, God forbid, somebody lost their footing and fell and died, not a, uh, um, they did not bat an eyelid. So they became pretty um, gung-ho about it. They wanted to um, do a lot of things. Initially, their intention was that they would live in the tower to be safe, just in case there was another flood. So they built the tower really tall, because they figured like it can rain and rain and rain, but there comes a point in time where you can't die of a flood. So initially there was a whole group of them that wanted this tower built so that it could, it could be tall enough to um, stop them from um, getting hurt or killed in another flood. The other, another group then afterwards started um, saying, well, let us worship our idols in the tower. We can make this tower um, something unbelievably great, a huge temple. And so they started doing that. And finally, and um, most importantly, and probably the worst of it all, um, a group came along and said, you know what? Why don't we build the tower tall enough that it will reach in the heavens? Let us wage war against God, get rid of him, and let us do our own thing. Just so that we could get an idea of how high, um, you know, the height of the tower, we are told that when eventually it does get destroyed, God destroyed it in three different ways. A third of the tower sank into the ground. Another third of the tower was burnt by fire and a third remained. And we are told that the third that remained, the remaining third was so high that the highest Jericho palm trees appear to be the size of grasshoppers hoppers from its top. So you can just actually picture in your mind's eye how enormously huge. Another description of how high this was, um, we are told, is that a person could walk in its shadow for three days without leaving it. That just gives you probably a, a, better, a better understanding um, 
of it. Question could be, why did God choose to destroy this tower that they eventually built in three ways? Why not just destroy it altogether? Let it just come crumbling down into a, a heap of stone. Why destroy a third by fire um, and destroy a third by sinking it into the ground and a third by leaving it? So the whole point of this tower was to wage war against God. Now, if God had done a unilateral destruction in any way, say the entire thing caught fire or the entire thing sunk, then what would happen, and this is always human nature, when we see something happen negatively or positively, we will always look at the cause that created the effect. Okay, so if a house burns down, you'll go and say, well, it was completely the fire's fault. It wasn't God. You know, it just, this was a natural cause. We could see that this is what happened and that was the result of what happened. So in order to clear the mind that um, it was in fact God that destroyed the tower, not the sinking, not the earthquake maybe, or the sinkhole that was there, not the fire, God actually destroyed the same Thing in three different ways So you couldn't actually go and say Well, you know, we had built on a sinkhole That was our mistake, that's why the whole thing collapsed Or, yeah, you know, Joe, Joe Schmo lit a, a cigarette And the whole thing caught fire God destroyed it in different ways In order that they they would understand that um, That it was in fact a divine Punishment. So they build this enormous, enormous structure. We're told that there were steps that were going up on the east and steps going down on the west, and they were like really like busy worker ants, um, trying to sort the entire thing out. And then we have the verse in uh, the verse chapter, uh, verse five in chapter eleven that reads as follows: Vayered Hashem God comes down to look at the city. And the tower that the sons of man had built. Very similar question we can ask as we did in the time of um, the story of Gan Eden and many other times and things. Why did God have to descend? Why are you saying that God had to descend into the city to see the tower being built? You are you could be saying that God, you see, they're right. You, God is not intimately involved in the world. He had to come down to go check out what was going on. But from a Torah perspective, we know that, um, that God is intimately involved in the world and there were, it did not necessitate that he had to come down into the city to go and see what it is there. Well, he, he was well aware, um, wherever he found himself and he finds himself everywhere. What they were doing. So why use the words Vayered Hashem and God descended down? So our rabbis come to teach that this is actually a lesson for us as human beings when we're coming down, when we want to meet our judgment, when we want to actually form a, formulate an opinion about something, um, we should be very, very careful that we first bow down, that we actually come down, we descend into the other person's shoes if we can and understand everything in its entirety before rendering that judgment. Then we've got verses um, 6 to 9 that say the following, by Yomer Hashem, God says, Hen amechad achad They are at this point in time a single people they all have one language. Um, and now, whatever it is that they did, 
Kol asher yazmu la'asot. This is the first thing they are doing, and now nothing they plan to do will be unattainable for them. Meaning what? God says to the angels, Hava, Nerda, then Navla, Sham, Safatam, Ashe lo yishmu, ish svat reu. Let's descend. The way we are going to destroy them is that we are going to confuse their speech so that one person will not understand the speech of another. Vayafetz Hashem otam misham alpnei kol ha'aretz. And because now they landed up with a confusion, one guy was speaking French, the other was speaking German, the other was speaking Afrikaans, and the other one was speaking Hebrew. Okay, they became very, very frustrated with each other. They couldn't understand each other. A civil, mini civil war broke out. And what absolutely happens after that is that people really get mad one with the other because they cannot understand each other. God then causes them—he scatters them all over the face of the earth. And they stop building the city. So their grandiose plan of building this enormous city and conquering God um, falls in vain, so to speak, because now they become scattered. They cannot understand each other. In fact, we said not only were 70 languages created at that point in time, but many, many dialects in between those languages, and we can appreciate that very well today. A large part of the world speaks English, but American English and Australian English and South African English and English English, um, many, many times we can actually go to a place where we do speak English, and you will see the look of what's going on on another person's uh, face when you do open your mind because our accents, our dialects, all of that um, are Different from one another. So God caused major confusion with these guys by changing their language. And that was actually um, the catalyst for them to stop, to stop building this enormous structure, which they believed they could, um, they could war against God. And it says that they actually got punished in six ways. The first was the fact that not only did their languages get muddled up, but that they had different dialects. And so this entire idea that the earth had one language with uniform words now fell apart. And this area, by the way, was called Bavel. Bavel comes from Le Balbel to get very confused because it became a land of confusion. So that is the, 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 the first punishment. They actually started fighting with each other. Um, because they couldn't understand each other. The second was that the ocean rose and swept about 30 families away from the, the builders, so there wasn't a destruction of everybody, but there was this natural disaster seemingly that came their way, and that made them pretty nervous. And when they started seeing that all this was happening, that they couldn't communicate and that there was floods now or flooding, um, or a tsunami, perhaps. It probably sounds more like a tsunami than anything else. They all, a number of the family set out to the mountains. They were trying to go back from whence they had come, from their homelands. And it said that God sealed the way before them, and they couldn't find um, any other way to go, and they landed up being swallowed up by the earth. We're told also that um, if they did manage to, to, to live together, they now became very, very isolated 
in their own lands and if they tried, say they came from the land of Egypt and said if somebody wanted to go to the city of Sidon, um, which was a big capital in ancient days, they got muddled up and landed up in the city of Tyre and vice versa. We're also told that some of the builders of the tower were transformed into wild animals, into spirits, into demons, and they va- basically got known as the Dor Haflaga, um, the generation of separation, of dispersion, and the worst of it all was that they um, landed up losing not only Olam Hazeh, this world, and everything in this world, but Olam Haba, the world to come, their heavenly um well, if they, they were deserved a, a heavenly reward, they lost that too. It's a very, very enigmatic story, a very, very strange story. You think, why would some, why would people start thinking like that? What do they, who, who do they think they are that they can actually go and conquer? But on a metaphorical level, um, as I mentioned earlier on in the beginning of the show, this is a story of our lives as well. We don't have to be in the, 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 you know, 1756 years before the common era and look at them and go, Oh, shame. These people are really like uncivilized, backward, you know, iron age people. We could understand their thinking today. We would never do such a thing. But the truth be told, the, the attitude pervading them is very much an attitude that pervades society today. We very much are a people that want to know that we are in control of everything that we do and that we have everything in place in order to maintain that control. So much so that we apply it to our daily lives, we apply it to ourselves personally, we apply it to our um our families, and so forth and so on, into our, our countries, our governments. We like this uh this this um, saying called self-determination, which in itself is not a bad thing, but self-determination can also allow some allow us to become pretty, you know, fat-headed over our abilities, arrogant about our abilities, and metaphorically we build these towers into the sky, saying, you know what, don't have to worry about God because we will conquer Him, we will sort out all the problems. We've got every single thing under control, and we we are able to. Um, attend to stuff. It's the same, it's the same theory. It's the same philosophy that they had in the time of the Tower of Babel. And this obviously is completely and utterly negated by God and, um, something that is not true to the Jewish point of view. And, uh, once we get back from our break, I'm just going to expound on it a little bit more. This is Mystical Text with Abel Kazilski. Welcome back, and uh, just before the break, we were discussing this entire um, tower that was built by the ancient people um, long before Abraham, um, in the generations between Noah and Abraham, the ten generations, and um, I came, or I gave a conclusion based on Torah, that metaphorically this this um, lesson for us is a lesson um, that underpins a fundamental in Judaism. And that fundamental is God is intimately involved in absolutely every part of our lives to the point the Baal Shem Tov teaches that uh, he will control the wind that will blow the blade of grass or move a dead leaf from one place 
to another, that there is no need for us to build a big tower, for us to try access God, to try, you know, fight with God, wage with God. God is very much in our lives, in the here and now, right now, in your space, and he is orchestrating everything that is happening to you. So we, with that understanding, we are not able ever to say, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That cannot be because God will always put you in the right place at the right time, even if it is, um, and it comes out in a negative way, that God looks after each and every single one of us intimately all the time, and that trying to wage war against God, trying to wage war against this concept is an exercise in futility simply because you will be brought down. Um, if God is omnipotent, omnipotent and God is everything and God is running the world, what chance do you stand trying to wage that war against God? So any person who harbors anger, fear, um, apathy, um, you call yourself an atheist, you can label yourself whatever it is that you want to label at the end of the day, God runs this world. He runs it intimately, is very intimately involved in your lives and in the lives of every single other human being on this planet, every other creature, every other living form, even the inanimate. And the lesson to be taken away from the Doha Haflaga, from the, from, from, from this generation of dispersion is that we should rather face God up front, even if you're mad at him, um, or sad at him, or anything else at him, and just uh, find a way to understand God and what he's doing in your life and forming a relationship with him because building a tower and trying to overcome him is, is futile. The next couple of verses from 10 onwards is just all about the lineage of one of the sons of shame, um, which I'm going to quickly skim over. It's not um, inconsequential. The reason why the Torah is spending time of it is because it's very cons uh, it, it has consequence in that the tenth generation from shame um, lands up being what we now consider our forefather Abraham. Nevertheless, we spoke about it last week in in in, in our studies. So I'm going to go through it very quickly with you again, starting on verse ten. These are the chronicles of shame. Shame was a hundred years old, and he had a son called. Arpachshad, that was two years after the flood, after he had Arpachshad, shame lived 500 years, he had sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years, he had a son called Shelach, after he had Shelach, Arpachshad lived 403 years, he had sons and daughters. Um, then Shelach lived 30 years, he had a son called Aver, and after he had Aver, Shelach lived 403 years, he had sons and daughters. Then Aver lived 34 years, he had a son called Peleg. After, um, after he had Peleg, he lived another 430 years. He had sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years. He had a son, Ru'u. After he had Ru'u, Peleg lived 209 years. He had sons and daughters. Ru'u lived 32 years. He had a son called Serug. Um, Ru'u then lived 207 years afterwards. He had sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years. He had Nahor. And after Nahor, um, Nahor had a son called Terach. Um, Nachor lived 190 years. He had sons and daughters. And then we have Terach lived 70 years, and he fathered Avraham, Nachor, and 
Haran. So what we actually see here is the ten generations from Shem all the way to Abraham. Abraham has two other brothers, Nahor and um, Haran. Now, just to understand a little bit from a, a historical point of view, you have Abraham, okay, brother one, Nahor, brother two, and Haran, brother number three. Now, Haran has a son whose name was Lot. And later on, when we learn about the story of Abraham, we know about his nephew Lot. It comes from his brother, um, brother Haran. Now, um, Abraham and Nahor, the other two brothers, marry. And who do they marry? Well, the, the, this um, third brother, Haran, that has Lot, also has a daughter called Milka and a daughter called Yiska. So brother number three, Haran, has a son and two daughters. Milka and Yiska are the daughters and Lot is the son. And what we are told is that Abraham marries Yiska. Now, Yiska is another name for Sarai. Okay. And the other brother, Nahor, marries Milka. So basically what we are seeing and understanding is that, in fact, the uncles married their nieces. So the one brother has a son and two daughters. The other two brothers marry those daughters. Avraham marries Sarai, who's called Yiska in, um, in, in, in the Torah. And um, Nahor marries Milka. Verse 30 reads, Vatihi Sarai Akara Elal Valad. Uh, Sarah was sterile, sterile. She could not have any children. Now, just very interestingly, from looking at the Hebrew, it should have said, Vatihi Sarai Akara, she was barren. Ve'en Labanim, she couldn't have children. This wasn't a fact that she couldn't have children, that there was a fertility problem, but that she was sterile. Ve'en Valad means that she was born without a womb. Um, and this then has a lot of... Um, Repercussion when we get down later and understanding the miracle of Isaac's birth of Yitzhak, the son of Abraham and Sarai, that it was completely and utterly an absolute miracle that they had a child because we are told very interestingly, here we see in the verse that Sarai was sterile, but we are told um, amongst other Mephorashim that Abraham too was sterile. Verse 31 reads, Vayikach terach et Avram benov, that Terach, Abraham's father, takes Lot and his Abraham, his son, the son of Haran, um, and they also takes it Sarai Kalato, Eshet Abraham, and also takes Sarah, the wife of Abraham, that means um, his granddaughter, Vayetu Itam, they left, Meurkastim Lalechet Arza Canaan, they start going towards the land of Canaan, Vayavo Ad Haran, Vayashvusham, they come to Haran, and that is where they Settle. This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. And we have a couple of minutes just to wrap up. So, um, just in, uh, you know, for completeness sakes, I'm going to read the last verse. We are just told that Terach leaves with Lot and Abraham and Sarai and they go live in a place called Haran. It says, all the days of Terach was 205 years. Vayamat Terach Bacharan 
um, Terah dies in Haran. And what is not said here in all of this is unbelievable midrash regarding the early, early life of Avraham, which unfortunately we have no space and time to discuss in, uh, you know, with, with, with a lot of detail. But just as a, a quick pricey, um, Abraham is born into the tyranny of Nimrod. We spoke about Nimrod. Again, go back into the podcast. He was a leader that made himself into a god that was pretty tyrannical and ruled the, the civilized world with an iron fist. And little Abraham at the age of three starts questioning, just like everybody else was in that time, who was God? What is God? Where do we find God? And in his infinite wisdom, he comes to his own conclusion that God is everywhere and that God controls everything. And the first um, years of Abraham's life, um, the first um, few decades of Abraham's life um, is dedicated in Abraham going out and trying to spread the idea of the unity of God, the oneness of God for all humankind. Remember, the Jewish people hadn't started. It will start with Abraham. But at this point in time, these 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 concepts were and are still relevant today for the whole of humankind, that there is only one God, there is not many gods, there are not sons of gods, there is only one God, and the, it is this God that rules the world and, and is involved in our lives in an intimate basis. And Abraham goes through many, many tests, one of them being thrown into a fiery furnace by Nimrod, being... um being one of the, the difficult ones of which he emerges alive, unharmed and well. Um, and Abraham starts an entire new world order in getting followers to follow him um, with the fundamental belief that there is only one God. Much has, much has been written and said about the life of Abraham, and I encourage you to uh, pick up a Midrash. There's a fantastic series called The Midrash Says. You can read a lot um, of meat, of a, lot of, a lot of information behind um, the stories of Abraham's early life from the time that he was born until um, God comes to him and tells him to leave um, his birthplace and move to the land of Israel, which, as I said in the, in, in the beginning, we are going to be tackling um, not from next week, but the week after. We have completed the Parsha of Noah. Chazak, chazak, venit chazak. Let us be strong. Let us be strong and be strengthened to continue um, learning Torah. I thank you for being my partner in the learning of Torah. I wish everybody who is going um, to warmer pastures um, or on our short winter breaks that you have a fabulous time. And please, God, I'll be here same time, same place in two weeks' time.